No. That leave me to my oppressors. Ensure your servant's well-being. Let not the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love, and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. And because I consider all your precepts, I hate everyone. Nice. Okay, we got some prayer requests here. Uh, Bill and Patty, the missionaries out in Arizona, take care of Mission One around the world. Mm -hmm. They have to make a decision now. They have not gotten full funding, and they are not able to continue unless uh, people are willing to become regular monthly uh participants in them and so it's something that if you can consider and help them uh send me an email if you don't have their information and i'll send it to you but uh they they are not going to be able to continue without that i mean they they went on faith about a year ago and they've tried desperately to raise funds elsewhere and it hasn't worked but we'll we'll pray about that tonight and um darla once again has an infection in her hip they <laughs> she thinks she's got something wrong uh, she called me yesterday. If it's an infection, they've got to go back in. They're going to have to take out the uh, the thing, oh, and they're going to have to put in a new one. And then she'll be on antibiotics. Yeah, fourth fourth operation. And then um, it could be something else, but uh, it, it it's one of those type of things. If she gave me three options, and uh, uh, no matter what, it's going to be at least an outpatient surgery, if not a replacement. So, um, and then uh, Mary Jo still. Uh, uh, asking people that if you can help her out do so uh, we've had some people help her out this week and i don't know where she's at on her funding but it's not half yet so uh there you go on that and um then we have a prayer request for bruce johnson my friend gordon emailed me this this guy's gone through four knee surgeries and he is still in immense pain and so he's asking specifically for somebody that prays a lot that remembers people in prayer if uh, you'd be willing to pick up bruce johnson's name in your head and just pray for him steadily he'd appreciate that and we'll pray for him tonight as well and uh let's see here let me read this and then we'll have a prayer and get into one corinthians we got today is uh anybody know today's six fifth third six. six. Oh, that's right because tomorrow's pearl harbor day that's right, that's right. okay december 6th we don't know where they're going but we're going to heaven John and Betty Stam met at Booty My <laughs> Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> See, I got this dyslexia, and I do that all the time. While uh, both were studying to become missionaries to China, after going there separately under the China Inland Mission, they were unexpectedly reunited, and a year later were married. On September 11, 1934, their daughter Helen Priscilla was born, and by the end of November, the Stams were installed in their new post in Singte. Only 27 and 28 years old, with a newborn baby, they seemed at the beginning of their ministry, but on December 6th of 1934, communist soldiers swept into Tsingte and arrested the Stams. John wrote to the CIM, My wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Tsingte. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. God grant you wisdom in what you do and us fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. The Lord bless and guide you, and as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death. The Stams were forced to make a difficult march to the town of Miaoshao. Physically exhausted, they were horrified to hear the soldiers discuss plans to murder their baby to make the trip easier. 
Witnesses said that an old farmer stepped forward to object. When challenged by the soldiers to take baby Helen's place, the man agreed and was shot on the spot. Little Helen's life was miraculously spared. Arriving in Miao Shao, the stands were imprisoned until morning. Then soldiers bound them both and forced them to leave their baby behind as they were marched through the streets. The soldiers called people to witness their execution. On a hill outside the village, a local Christian doctor stepped forward to beg for their lives. The soldiers condemned him to die as well, and when John asked for mercy for the doctor, he was immediately beheaded. Betty fell on her knees beside John and was beheaded as well. A Chinese evangelist named Lo was hiding with his family outside the village. Hearing of the executions, they came secretly into town, where villagers furtively pointed toward a silent house. Entering it, Lo found baby Helen, not three months old, miraculously safe after 30 hours alone. Taking her with him, he went to the hill and found her parents' bodies, hastily organized his friends' burials, but he spoke to the people who had gathered, you have seen these wounded bodies and you pity our friends for their suffering and death, but you should know that they are children of God. Their spirits are unharmed and at the moment in the presence of their heavenly father. They came here not for themselves, but for you, to tell you about the great love of God that you might believe in the Lord Jesus and be eternally saved. You've heard the message. Remember, it is true. Their death proves it so. Do not forget what they told you. Repent and believe the gospel. Still in danger and penniless, the Lowe family made their escape from Miao Shao with the baby. Pinned inside Helen's sleeping bag, they found two $5 bills along with clean diapers and clothes. It was all the stamps had been able to leave to Helen, but it was just enough to provide for their 100-mile journey to safety. Brought to her parents in Sinan, Helen was found to be perfectly healthy. The news of the miracle baby and her parents' martyrdom spread around the world. In response, many hundreds pledged their lives to missionary service, and there was a great outpouring of prayer and support for the China Inland Mission. A fellow missionary in China wrote Betty's parents, a life which had the longest span of years might not have been able to do 100th work of work for Christ, which they had done in a day. And they ask, are you surprised that God spared the baby and not the parents? Our times are in God's hands. He has numbered our days and given us immortality until the day he has chosen for our death. And Job 14.5 says, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. <laughs> kind of sad stuff there. Kind of sad stuff. But that's what uh, why we have all those Voice of the Martyrs things in the back, and we have missionaries around the world that are doing their job. But anytime you get... Uh, left-leaning ideas like communism, you're going to have that happen. I mean, it's going to happen to non-Christians here soon enough, much less the Christians, unless the Lord comes first. Uh, let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you so much for the many blessings of this life. We thank you for faithful people that are willing to give their lives for the sake of the gospel, even in places where it's pretty evident that they may not come back home at all. Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that you bless them and help them in their hearts and in their uh, lives as they go forth, even in uncertain times and in uncertain places, spreading your word. And we would pray for uh, Bill and Patty that uh, their funding would come about. And if it doesn't, you have something else planned for them, and it wasn't meant to be. But they've done a good year and a half of service. They've been faithful to you, and we would ask that you would just lead them in their steps properly so that they would make the right decisions that will glorify and honor you. And we know they will. 
Lord, we pray for the other people we've mentioned, and we thank you for Miss Magnuson, who's here tonight, and we hope that uh, her health will continue to be strong, and uh, she'll be happy and healthy. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for the guests that are here tonight, and all of the good blessings that you give us, and above all, help us tonight to honor you through your word without abusing it, without mishandling it, and with uh, only ensuring that we state what is proper and right. We love you, Lord. You are so good to us. We do praise you. We exalt you. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we have um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're in verse 9. But um, uh, I just want everybody to know that Linda missed church on Sunday because of a cat. Yes, I, I, I said if it was a dog, I'd understand it. But... <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that out. It's kind of cute. Oh, goodness. Okay. I should be thankful. I am. I'm just, she's actually not feeling. Are you feeling better, though, right? Oh, she feels fine. That's what I thought. I'm glad I didn't get my germs. Yeah, she had germs on Sunday, so she used the cat as an excuse to keep us from getting sick. So we appreciate that. Anyway, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Oh, and uh, before we go on, we've got George and Nancy visiting from New Hampshire. So we want to welcome you guys. Thank you so much for making the effort of coming down and being with us. Yeah. And uh, how long are you going to be here for? Uh, after Christmas sometime. Oh! We've been here for about two months now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, gee whiz. If you come down again, let me know. And we've got an extra room in the house. You can stay with us if you want to spend a night or something, whatever, you know. But uh, all right. Praise the Lord. Um, let's see here. Um, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians. I've said this three yeah, times now. Back up to four. Yeah, go ahead and just start a paragraph so we have something. Uh, something. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. In him, you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Mm. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yep. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. All right. And they took just the same words and they just turned them around backwards. God is faithful who has help. Yeah, they're, just, they're trying. Well, they're trying. Yeah, they're dyslexic like me. They're trying not to get to caught with plagiarism so they just fiddle with the words and turn them around but anyway um the word faithful here is emphatic so we'll say it uh god is faithful it's in the emphatic position in the greek um in the greek it is the first word of the sentence a direct translation would say faithful god by whom you were called what god speaks he will perform what god determines will always come about and what god has started he will complete he is absolutely faithful this is also seen, for example, in Philippians 1, verse 6, where he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Same type of thought there. God is indeed faithful, and it is he by whom you were called, Paul says. The word called implies more than hearing a voice in the distance. It is the effectual calling noted by Paul in Romans chapter 8. In that chapter, he gives the sequence of events which leads from that effectual calling right up until our being ushered into glory, as is stated in Romans 8, verse 28. Let me read that to you here. Burke's already saying it off the top of his head. So, now, yeah, and we know that all good things work together for good. 
to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Wonderful stuff. To God who calls, we are already glorified in his mind. It's done. When you call on Jesus Christ as Lord in God's mind, which means God doesn't, I've said this before, God doesn't think like we do. If God thinks, then there's time associated with it because thinking is a process where time is going on. That's not the God of the Bible. God knows everything immediately and he knows everything intuitively. We think in different ways. We think uh, uh, syllogistically. That's a person sitting there. He's got hair on his leg. It has hair on its legs. It has big shoes. It has a beard on its face. It must be a male, right? That's syllogistical thinking. It's this, this, therefore this. Or we think dicursively. Dicursively is thinking random thoughts. Well, Jim is sitting there with a funny yellow shirt on. Linda is sitting there bored out of her mind. We've got Cindy over there smiling. That's just dicursive thinking. That's, but all of that is happening in time. God doesn't think that way. God knows everything immediately intuitively. So when we come to Jesus Christ and we receive him, which God knew we would do, it, it doesn't negate free will that God knows these things. But he knew that we would make that decision before he created a single thing. In his mind, we are already glorified. Everything is done. Those he called, he sanctified. Those or justified, those he justified, he sanctified. Those he sanctified, he glorified. It is done. Okay. Another of the many, many countless, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, proofs of eternal salvation. God doesn't think, oh, I'm going to save somebody and then not save somebody. It doesn't work that way. God saves people and they are saved. Okay, what you do with your salvation and what, with you, what you do in anticipation of the judgment seat of Christ is wholly up to you. But you are saved and you will remain saved. Okay, so... To God who calls, we are glorified in his mind. This is the surety of the doctrine of, as it says explicitly in the book of Hebrews, eternal salvation. Jesus Christ is the author of maybe salvation. He's the author of sometimes salvation. He's the author of you can lose your salvation. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. It says that Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. Okay. Um, so um, though we may err, we may stray, or we may even forget God will not. Where does it say that we can forget our salvation? Peter. Yes. 2 Peter 1 verse 13 or somewhere. 9. Very good though. You're close. 2 Peter 1 verse 9. It says that you can actually forget that you have been cleansed from your past sins. Okay. It, it, God doesn't. God doesn't forget those things ever. We are saved and we will remain saved. All right. So um, that which has been started will be accomplished. And this is wonderful news for those who step out in faith and receive Jesus Christ as Lord. The calling which Paul speaks of is just that, too. It is into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We move from Adam to Christ. We go from strangers and aliens to friends. We were separate from God, and we now belong to God. As Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we are in Christ we are now also called sons of God. See the logic there? We're all sons of God through faith in Christ. The marvel of what God has done through Jesus will be held in awe by all of us for all eternity. We're never going to have a time where we say, I can't believe that he did what he did. 
I, and just think, you know, we got forever and ever. And there are going to be times where Jesus is going to walk up and we'll be doing whatever we're doing. And there he is, the one that redeemed us. I can't wait for that. I mean, he's got a lot of people to see. There are billions of Christians in the world since the church began. So he's going to be meeting a lot of people, but he's got forever to do it. And when, just imagine like, sitting down, having a talk with the Lord. You know, it's going to happen. I mean, just at some point, we're just life application. Jesus Christ is our Lord. Let's live and act as if we really believe it to the glory of God the Father. One hey, Yep. I appeal to you, brothers, in the same, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be, may be no division among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Okay. Cursive or... Yeah, exactly. This one's a little different. It says the same thing. I'm going to read it anyway. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So here you go. 110. Paul now transitions from initial greetings, which have been going on for the first nine verses, and encouragements into the main body of... Uh, and purpose of his epistle. In this first verse of the main body, he begins with the Greek term parakalode, I exhort moreover. The participle de is what implies the transition to reproof. Five principal rules should be applied when evaluating scripture for personal use, okay? There are many others, but these first five should always be at the forefront of one's mind. I know Jim knows them, so I'm going to let him say, what are they? First is, is it prescriptive? Descriptive. That's right. Context, context, context. That's right. Those are the five rules of hermeneutics that you should always remember when you are looking at the Bible. Is it descriptive? Does it merely describe something? Is it prescriptive? Does it actually tell me to do something that I'm to do? Okay. Question, when Paul says that I was, um, uh, I fought off bears in Ephesus, or maybe he said uh, wild beasts in Ephesus, okay? Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive. descriptive. It describes. We're not to go out to Ephesus and fight off wild beasts, right? Okay. But that is what we need to evaluate. And if it's a descriptive passage, we just let it go. We read it, we evaluate it, and then we go on. If it is prescriptive, if Paul says you are not to do this certain type of thing or you are to do this certain type of thing, then he is prescribing something for you to do. Okay. What am I to do? All right. And then the context. What is the context of this particular passage? Because every passage has a context. And then the fourth rule is what is the context? And the fifth rule is what is the context? You are to remember the context all the time and not suddenly stray away from it. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful, wonderful book to remember the context. The uh, verse that I typed up today, I think it was 811. Is completely taken out of context by everybody, including almost every scholar since the church began, because they think that Israel is out, right? Israel is out, and we've replaced Israel, and so let me see if that was it. I see Linda looking at it. We might as well look at it really quickly. Um, well, that's No, no, it's the one I typed today. It won't be out for another 10 days. Um, Hebrews 8, I think it's verse 11. It says, um, you did uh, 728 today, so Hebrews 8, 11. Uh, none of them, yeah, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, right? He's quoting Jeremiah 31 from verse eight all the way through verse 11. He's quoting, Jer or actually through verse 12, but 11 is why I did today. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, okay? 
Who is Jeremiah speaking to? Israel. He's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to the Hebrew people, right? And so when it says, none of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of them his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Who is it speaking about? The Hebrew people. It doesn't matter that this is the church age. There's a reason why Hebrews is put after Paul's epistles. It's because Hebrews is actually addressed in God's redemptive plans to the Jews of the end time after the rapture of the church. Yes, we read the Bible in its fullness and all of it applies to us in a certain way, but not in the same way at all the times. So everybody got that? In other words, the law pertains to Israel during that time. It does not pertain to us today. We're not under the law, but we can still read the law and understand what God is doing in human history. Okay, the book of Hebrews is not written to the Gentile-led church. There are things in Hebrews that apply to the Gentile-led church, but passages like that in no way, shape, or form do. They were written by Jeremiah to Israel, and he is citing that to the Hebrew people. Yes? All the Bible was written for us, but not to us. To us, yes. All of the Bible is written. That's what I was trying to think of that, and he gets all these cliches in his head, and I can't remember them. All the Bible is written for us, but not specifically to us. Very good. Okay. Um, and, and by the way, the Old Testament saints are going to begin with those billions. You oh, since the church began? Yeah. But Abraham was before that. Oh, absolutely. Now, there is there is debate. Will the Old Testament saints be raptured? Were they positionally in Christ because they were looking forward to the Messiah? Some people say yes, and some people will say no. The Bible is not explicit on that. And you know what? I don't get dogmatic about it. I don't fight with people that say, oh, they're not included in the church. Well, why not? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And what did he believe in? The promise of Messiah to come. Okay? He's in Christ looking forward. So I would assume that he's going to. But once again, I don't argue that with people because everybody's a specialist. Everybody knows everything and they just, you know, whatever. But uh, you are right. I, I would agree with that. I would personally agree that the Old Testament saints that were looking forward to Messiah are a part of the church. But when I speak of the church, I'm speaking about since the resurrection. Anyway, um, so uh, we got descriptive, prescriptive context, okay? As the epistle is being evaluated, meaning 1 Corinthians, we must ensure that we have considered the context of the passage or it becomes a pretext, thank you, a falsity. In essence, context is king. When considering whether something is prescriptive, there are two logical subdivisions to be considered also. I usually don't give these because I don't want to overwhelm you. The first five are enough, okay? But if you are looking at prescriptive uh, passages, is it a command or is it an exhortation? And there is a difference. Mm -hmm. An imperative to do something is a command. You are to do this, right? If you don't do this, then you will be erring, okay? The other one is an exhortation, which is a plea to do something. Brothers, get along, right? He's asking them, please, to do this and, and uh, stating it in a way that he would hope that they would do it. But he's not commanding them to do it. Some things you just don't, are not obligated to do in the church. But when he exhorts, he's, or, you know, work harder. You know, that's an exhortation. But when you say, I order you to work or you're fired, that's a command. There's a difference between the two. Okay. Understanding why something is either an imperative or an exhortation is needed because we have free will to consider. When we fail at a command, we are being obedient and it will definitely affect others, the body, and so on in a negative way. When we fail to adhere, adhere to an exhortation, we're making bad choices that can have negative impacts on us. The result is usually 
self-destructive, more self-destructive in nature as individuals or as a body, even though others outside the exhortation can be harmed as well. Okay, when God exhorts something, we're the ones that will suffer. At times, other people might suffer, but it is not something that is going to negatively affect the body as a command would. Okay, it is some, sometimes hard to determine if what we're being told is actually a command or a mere prompting to act without compulsion. But being attentive to the context will normally resolve the matter. So everybody got that? We got the five major rules, and then we got a subdivision of the, uh, the uh, prescriptive. prescriptive. Is it prescriptive? Is it a command? Or is it an exhortation? All right. These general rules may seem unnecessary, but they're actually critical to a proper under understanding and analysis of Scripture. <clears throat> if we remember them, our walk and our doctrine will be greatly enhanced. So considering these tenets, let's start into the main body of Paul's letters with now. As noted above is the participle they. It's a transitional marker, okay? He goes on, I plead with you. Implies that Paul, what Paul says here is prescriptive, but in the form of an exhortation. When he says, I plead, he's not commanding you, he's exhorting you, okay? We are encouraged to take action based on a plea. And if we do so, things will go smoothly. If we don't, then negative consequences are sure to result. All right. And then he goes on to the next word, brethren. It's Paul's way of tying the church together into a unified body, and it, it encourages continued unity within that body. Call you all brothers. You're all brothers and sisters in Christ when you're arguing with one another. And I say something like that. It's to help you to try to remember that you're arguing with somebody that is actually a brother. They say that blood is thicker than water. That's not always the case in Christian circles, okay? We find it easier to argue with people and to dispute over things than to actually be a body. And I'm guilty of that too. I'm not saying, you know, anything in particular. We all fall short in that. But if we were to treat fellow Christians, I get really upset sometimes when I see people tear Christians apart on social media. I, I you know, especially when I see somebody... Franklin Graham, they just tear the guy apart. And I think, you know, that guy has done more than you've done. He's done more in the past two months than you will ever do in your life as you sit on Facebook and complain about people. I it just it, it, I, I, I just can't stand seeing that kind of thing. Billy Graham got it when he was alive. Franklin Graham gets it all the time now. I don't care about his personal life. I don't care what how much he makes. If he's earned whatever his pay is, that's fine. It doesn't make any difference to me. I guarantee you that what he does is a lot more than those complainers will ever do, ever in their entire Christian walk as they sit and they moan about Billy Graham or about some preacher that they don't like. I, I just, you know, wow. Anyway, unless somebody is actually teaching bad doctrine, and I'm talking about really bad doctrine, let them go. I mean, if somebody's teaching something you disagree with, like pre-tribulation or post-tribulation, don't attend their church, but don't tear them apart. If they're teaching that Jesus isn't God, then you have a legitimate excuse to correct that person or to tear them apart all you want. They're teaching heresy. That's fine. But to just beat people up over little doctrinal issues is just, it's crazy. Anyway, so we need to remember that when the word brethren is used, it's the masculine speaking for all, okay? In the Greek, like in the Hebrew, when one man is in a room, if, it doesn't matter if there's 50 women and one man, it will be in the masculine, okay? That's just the way it is, and that's the way it used to be in English. We would say, gentlemen, okay? And there might be ladies in the congregation. It was the way that we spoke, and that's obviously changing very quickly in our, our you know, our language today. But um, when he says brethren, it is inclusive of everybody. Now, 
you get newer translations of the Bible, and in order to be politically correct, they change brethren to read brothers and sisters, right? It doesn't say that in the Greek, okay? It, it is inclusive of it. Don't get me wrong. It is inclusive of it, but it is unnecessary to change your translation of Scripture to accommodate that. If people can't get along with it, let them buy another copy of Scripture, but that's just the way it works, all right? Anyway, whatever. That's one of my pet peeves is changing things simply for political correctness. It, it, it makes no sense, but brethren. And then he goes on. Um, brethren is Paul's way of tying the church together into a unified body and encourages continued unity within that body. As we're going to see in the many verses ahead, disunity, fraction, infighting, and division are all major problems within the church at Corinth. We talked about that last week. Believe me, it, it's, they're plagued with it, okay? So Paul goes on. After saying brethren, he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling on the highest making the highest appeal possible in what he's saying. You're first saying your brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is given as the highest authority and it is given as the only name upon which we are to be identified. Not Pope Francis, not pastor whoever from this church or, uh, you know, whatever. John Calvin, I'm a Calvinist. I, that really bothers me when I hear people say that. When I, they identify themselves first with John Calvin. They do that with, you know, I, I, you hear it all the time. I follow this guy or I follow that guy. I am a Christian. I hold to what Calvin teaches. But, you know, to say that I'm a Calvinist reduces Christ, all right, because John Calvin is a fallible guy. Anyway, um, so uh, a very, very good example of a major failing in this regard continues on in our Christian world today. Oh, I've got the example right here. I could have just... Uh -huh. It occurs, one, denominationally. I am a Roman Catholic. As a matter of fact, when you say I'm a Christian, they will turn around and they will say in the next sentence, why well, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Roman Catholic. And I think, so you're not a Christian. Right. That, because that's the implication when they say something like that. Or I am a Lutheran or I'm a Baptist. In some, uh, some instances, there is the incredibly stupid doctrine that one can only be saved if they are a member of their particular denomination. We've all heard that before. The, uh, Mel Gibson is under the impression that you are only saved through the Catholic Church, and he believes that because that's what the Pope said, and so he passes that on. I heard him say it in an interview one time. And of course, the JWs, who aren't even saved at all, but they think that they're the only way of salvation. Right. And then the Church of Christ. If you haven't been baptized into the Church of Christ, then you're not a saved believer. And it goes on and on and on. Listen. Jesus Christ saves, not names, not titles, not getting baptized. None of those things will save a person. And I have to tell you that if you get cremated, you will not go to hell, okay? There are all kinds of things that people put way up above the blood of Jesus Christ, and it has nothing to do with salvation or loss of salvation. It has to do with control. That's exactly what it is. We are the only true church. If you don't attend this church, then you're getting bad doctrine, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so it's exactly what it is. It's control, and it means that they will be stuck in your denomination forever, and they will be giving you their money. That's exactly what it is. So um, uh, let's see here. This isn't limited to large denominations, but it's taught by many smaller denominations, by cults, and by aberrant churches around the world. Rather, there is one way to be saved, and it is through Jesus Christ. It is not through a denomination. The second way, it occurs by an individual name, and I've already said it, I'm a Calvinist, or I'm an Arminian, or I'm this, or I'm that, okay? Such petty divisions only divide the body. Now, if you say, I attend a Baptist church, 
nothing wrong with that. I attend an Episcopal church. Well, yeah, there is something wrong with that, but you could say it, okay? But you, you get my point is that if you say you attend something, but when you start identifying yourself as that, when they're just a fallible group that has fallible doctrine, you are erring in that, okay? I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, all right? Okay, so uh, such petty divisions divide the body. The fact is that both John Calvin and Jacob Arminius were both fallible men with often very flawed doctrine. To identify oneself in this manner is to reduce one's reliance on the word of God and on the name of Jesus Christ and to go down a strange path of less than proper doctrine, all right? That you all speak the same things are Paul's next words that you all speak the same thing. It is supportive of what was just said by Paul, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the members of a church uphold, exalt, and rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ, then they will naturally tend to speak the same thing. However, there are always going to be differences of opinion on what a Bible verse says when the main rules that we've already gone through are not handled properly. If you don't use those, what is, is it descriptive? It's Acts, perfect example. The entire book of Acts minus about three verses, and I'm saying that in tongue in cheek, but very few verses are prescriptive in the book of the Acts. Very, very few. What? Yeah, they are descriptive. It is almost entirely descriptive. And people take the, especially Acts chapter two, and they set denominational boundaries based on Acts chapter two. They set doctrinal boundaries based on Acts chapter two. And it's a descriptive passage. It tells what Peter said to the Hebrew people. The Gentiles weren't even considered in that at the time. And it becomes the church's marching orders in the Gentile-led church. It is, has nothing to do with that. You cannot use those passages from Acts in a prescriptive manner and have sound doctrine. You cannot. It is not possible. Because if you take this one and there's three examples and all three of them are different, which one are you going to choose? It is impossible to have sound doctrine using Acts as your doctrine for the church age. It is impossible. You cannot do it, okay? So, um, let's see here. Um, where was I? And the person work of Jesus Christ, then they will, if they rely on it, if they hold to Jesus Christ and they exalt him, then they will be speaking the same thing. However, there are always going to be differences, I said that, um, of opinion on what a Bible verse says. And so again, in order to speak the same thing, as Paul says, we need to always consider the five principal rules of interpretation. Prescriptive, descriptive, context, context, context. Okay? By doing this, we will properly handle the Word of God and be more inclined to always speak the same thing. We'll be united in our thoughts. Okay? Not going to always happen, but will we be more inclined for it to happen? Continuing on, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to have no divisions among you. This is one church he's writing to, but this church, or this epistle is an epistle that is saved in the canon of scripture, and so it applies to every church equally. Even though he's saying, have no divisions among you in Corinth, he's speaking about all churches everywhere, okay? The word here in Greek is schismata, okay? Where do, yes, schism is where we get the word schism from. It is a word that indicates a tear or a breach, in classical Greek, the word was specifically used when noting the tearing of material, okay? When a garment is torn, it is no longer one piece, but two. These two pieces are no longer in harmony with one another and cannot be used for the same purpose they once were. Everybody understand that? It's all woven together. It's one piece. You tear it, and now all these fibers are hanging out. It will never be a cohesive unit. It cannot be used for the same purpose again. 
okay? The idea is that we are not to become a schism because once we do, then we can't be used in a manner which is effective for Christ any longer, okay? However, with a properly wielded needle, ugh, that was tough, and thread, you can repair those schisms, okay? Paul is addressing and will continue to address major schisms within the church at Corinth. However, his epistle is just that. It is an intended fix, the metaphorical needle and thread. When divisions of a similar type arise today, we can use this same epistle dating back now 2,000 years to fix the same old problems which arise. For example, come on people, drop the name Calvinist from your Bible study. Okay, this is a Calvinist Bible study. Guess what you've done? You've put up a schism. You have put up a division in the church. You've torn something in half. Arminians are not going to attend that Bible class. They're not going to do it. Okay, or if you have Arminian Bible class, Calvinists are not going to go unless they want to get into a punching fight. All right, drop that and you will have a better idea of what to uh, uh, start with in your Bible teaching. And to finish this thought, he begins with, but in contrast to this, do that. And the that is for them to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Instead of factions, divisions, backbitings, infightings, and other schisms, he implores them to be joined together as one cloth without tear and without the need of mending. They are to be of the same mind, as Paul says, the same mind, as they together resolve the difficult issues of running a harmonious and loving congregation. By using this, this is it. By using the Bible, we can do this today. Without the Bible as our instruction, it will not occur. But to be of the same mind concerning the Bible, we also need to be of the same judgment. That's why Paul says the same mind, same judgment. There's only one proper conclusion to be made from all biblical passages. And that sounds impossible, doesn't it? Because in the sermon on Sunday, I'll tell you about denominations, how many there are in the world, right? And it seems like it's impossible. But there is, to God, only one proper interpretation. That means that one may have it right, but everyone else that disagrees has it wrong. There is one proper interpretation of every verse in Scripture, okay? So, uh, uh, one proper conclusion, but to come to the same judgment, there needs to be a putting away of pride, a more thorough knowledge of the whole body of Scripture, and a complete reliance on what is actually intended for a passage, even if it seems contrary to what we may wish or desire. Our desires are irrelevant when God determines we should always agree. Now, having said that, what I've done is I've taken all of, as I'm typing my Hebrews uh, commentary, which is one verse a day, and we're in Hebrews 7, finish that today, we'll be in Hebrews 8, one tomorrow. I take my old um, commentary, I did a Hebrews commentary years ago, and I always take that and I put it down below what I'm looking at for that day to see if I still agree with what I said. And I can't tell you how many times I've disagreed with what I said once because I've learned more, right? And I've looked and I've said, sometimes I've read it and I've said, how did I know that back then? Because I just did those off the top of my head. I never read any commentaries or anything. And I think, gee, that was pretty good. But there are times where I think, wow, what was I thinking? Because I was applying, you know, Gentile-led church into an obviously Hebrew-intended passage. Okay, and what you need to do, and I do it every single morning, is I put aside every single presupposition I have, uh, just like I do with the sermons. I have no presupposition. I'm just going to look at this, and I'm going to evaluate it based on what the context is. 
And eventually, you know, I may go through and rewrite the commentary again. I may do Hebrews again in 10 years or something. But right now, I'm just, as a matter of fact, this morning's was so contrary to what I had originally posted. I decided I'm taking down my old commentary from the website until I'm finished with this one. Because you just learn, you grow, you know more, and you're also able to evaluate things a lot more after having done the book of Leviticus. I'll tell you that. Having done the book of Leviticus, I can now say that Hebrews is completely different in my mind than it was before. Because it was a marvelous book. I'm telling you, if you haven't watched the Leviticus sermons, you're missing a real understanding of what God is doing and how it points to Jesus Christ. Every single word. Amazing. Anyway, um, so uh, I'll read that last sentence again. Our desires are irrelevant. When God determines, we should always agree. Got a life application for you? Paul's letters to the Corinthians will address numerous real problems. These problems didn't end with the publication of the epistle. Why? Because people run ahead without giving heed to the word of God. What we need for proper doctrine and correct living is found right here in the Bible. Let us hold fast to it and always apply it to our lives. 111. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. <coughs> That's it? Wow. That is it. Okay, this one. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. They kind of rewrote it, just restructured the entire thing. Haiku. Haiku version. Yes, haiku version. Exactly. Uh, the word for, the word for is used as a connector to the previous verse and to then build upon that thought. That's why I don't like when they restructure it away from the Greek too much is because those prepositions in the Greek are all there and they're there for a reason. And when he puts them there, he's always got something on his mind leading to something else. The closer the English is to the Greek and the closer or the more proper putting in the preposition, the better off you're going to be. So it's even with the English translation, I mean, you should be highlighting the prepositions as you go along, you know, mentally or maybe circling them or highlighting them with the highlighter, and that will show you the train of thought. Translators usually do a pretty good job, even if it's out of order, but the closer it is to the order, the more you're going to see the emphatic nature of certain thoughts or whatever, but that's the word for there is a connector, all right? In verse 10, we read, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Based on this, for it has been declared, is now stated. Everything he just said was there for a reason, and he's saying for, for a reason. For it has now been declared, or it has been declared. Paul wanted the Corinthians perfectly joined together together in the same mind and in the same judgment. But they weren't in such a state. And so in order to resolve the wayward condition they were in, he was writing this epistle of instruction. And then he goes on, concerning you, means the Corinthians, and it is to them specifically that he is writing. This letter may or may not have been intended as an encyclical, and you all know what that means. It's or send it to this church. After you read it, send it on to this church. After you read it, send it on to this church. This may not have been intended that way because of the problems which are so prominent there. He may have just written it to them and said, don't bother sending this on. You just keep reading it, okay? Or make a copy of it and then send it on. But anyway, um, where was I in that? But either way, it is specifically meant for this church at this time. However, it is also intended as a guide for any other church facing similar circumstances. And so God ensured it would be kept and eventually included in his word. And despite the rebuke that is coming, 
Paul next enters the thought with, my brethren, does it again. He isn't questioning, nor will he question the salvation of individual believers. He never does it. I want you all to know that when Paul writes his epistles, he never one time questions the salvation of a, a person. He never says that person has lost his salvation. Never. You will not find that in Paul's writings. Anybody that tells you that it's in there doesn't know what they're talking about. He never questions their salvation. He says, brethren, he calls them brethren. He might say that they've you know, followed after Satan. I don't care how he terms it. He never says that person has lost his salvation. It's not going to be found in Paul's writings, okay? So, um, and he never does in any of his epistles. Paul works under the assumption that if a person is saved, they are forever saved. There's no such thought in his writings or in the rest of the Bible that one can lose their salvation. Verses which seem to imply this are always mishandled and are out of context. He's writing to his brethren for their instruction and reproof. With the endearing term, my brethren, now stated, he enters into the main reason for his thoughts. It was declared to him, as he says, by Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Chloe is otherwise unknown in the Bible, but she is a woman of such note that including her name indicates that what is declared is not amiss, but is correct. It would be like me saying, who is somebody that we could, uh, uh, you go to the White House and you say, well, this person in the White House said this, then you know that it's a proper thing. Then you get somebody on the other side that says, well, that person says that, and you know, it's improper, right? Okay. Anyway, Chloe is obviously well known, well known enough that when he cites her name, everybody says, this is actually happening. We can't deny it. Okay. It isn't actually Chloe who brought these things to Paul's attention, but those of her household. However, by noting Chloe, it is inferring that those in her household would be of the same caliber and reliability. Perhaps they're family or servants speaking on her behalf to Paul. If they are, they're bringing a report of contentions from her, then the report is certainly true. You okay, Bert? I'm fine. Okay. He's over there just looking off into somewhere, and I'm, are you thinking? I'm Counting the guys in the Lord's Supper. Oh, okay. He's counting the guys in the Lord's Supper in the uh, the painting on the wall. Um, Bible class over here. Bill was honest. He is honest. Good job. I was just wondering what he's doing. I thought maybe he was. I, I watched a uh, TEDx thing yesterday. I watched two of them. One was remember the picture of taken the year I was born, 1964, of the bullet going through the apple. And that was taken at one millionth of a second. And an Indian guy got up and he said, we can now take one in one trillionth of a second. And they did a video of light, sorry, a light beam that was clicked very, very quickly, a laser hitting the back of a Coke bottle. Okay, one trillionth of a second. And they caught all of that light going into the back of the bottle and going into the bottle, hitting the cap, bouncing off all the waves around it and everything. Yeah. One, it was astonishing to watch. Anyway, one trillionth of a second. He says, if we were to take that same camera and do that with the gunshot from 1964, we'd be watching it all day long. That's how, really? yeah, it, uh, amazing how fast light is. Anyway, um, the second TEDx I watched, which made me think of Burke, because it really did, was it was on hypnotism. And I didn't know if it's real or not. And this guy did a talk on hypnotism. 
and that's what you look like. So <laughs> that, that's why I. Yeah, he's being hypnotized by Darla's beautiful. What is that's that? Petty pointing, pin pointing, no, uh, needle, needle no, point. No, it's embroidery. Embroidery. Okay, embroidery. Darla's embroidery. Okay, yeah, she yeah. did that for us. Yeah, years ago. That was the first thing that I think we brought in here after that uh, painting there. Anyway, um, the word contentions is the Greek word eridis. It means that there are altercations occurring within the church, and these were arising because of the divisions noted in the previous verse. When people divide and disagree, it will inevitably lead to altercations. If not resolved, there will certainly be worse problems, which will arise, and eventually a complete division of the church could result. Paul desires that they unite in harmony rather than divide in contention. All right? Life application. Have you, have you ever seen this in any church you've ever been in before? Everybody's giving me that look. Of course you have, because every church is the same as Corinth. They have people, right? The old saying, if you want to, if you, uh, somebody comes and they says, well, um, I found the perfect church, then you tell them, then you better not join it because it ain't going to be perfect anymore, right? There's no such thing as a perfect church because it has people in it, all right? You're going to see these things, and Paul wrote these words so that all churches throughout the church age would look at them and say, self-evaluate. Am I doing this? Am I a cause of contention? Am I causing, and even if I am, if I've caused contention, can I somehow make it right? Okay, we all cause contentions, but how can I be somebody that will make it right after I've done it? You know, anyway, um, life application. Divisions in the church are sure to come. If they are because of a tradition, then drop that tradition. Okay, you got a book of discipline. Oh, this is a Methodist book of discipline. Get rid of it. Okay, who was I talking to? Somebody was talking about that, and they said, um, they were talking about the church and it had a book of discipline. I think it was in an email. Anyway, um, uh, they said to the people, well, we use the book of discipline. He says, why? why? Well, you've got the word of God. And the guy actually was contemplative enough to say, I guess you're right. Right? <laughs> you don't need a book of discipline if you have the word of God. I wish I could remember who. That was and, last Thursday. Last Thursday. No, it was it was sure. I, I was I was involved with that conversation. Well, maybe it was then. Maybe it was uh maybe it was you that said it to me. Uh, it was either before church or before. Okay, maybe it was before church. Anyway, yes, it was recently, and boy, I just don't remember it. But uh, uh, yeah, why have a book of discipline? What purpose does it serve? It, yes. Like this has flaws. In what you were complaining about, it serves the purpose that if we write it, we can amend it. That's exactly right. If it is written by man, it can be amended by man. This cannot be. The Jehovah's Witnesses have the world, uh, New World Translation. That is not the Bible. Okay? If something can be amended as they have amended it, it is not the Bible any longer. Okay? That's all there is to it. If you are using scripture and you change it, it is no longer the Bible. It is not to be amended. But a book of discipline can be. And then it overrides the word of God, and you don't need the Bible at all anymore. That's the problem there. So anyway, um, uh, divisions are sure to come. If they're because of a tradition, drop their tradition. Anything added to God's word which causes the, a division is not worth the trouble. If the division is something doctrinal, then go to the word. God has given us what we need in his word to rectify any doctrinal issue. Be prepared to search the word while look at working in love to calm the contention. Now, here's a question for you. Do we handle demon possession in the church? Do we perform exorcisms? Is that No, why? 
because the Bible is sufficient for our doctrine and practice, right? Is it mentioned in the Bible what we are to do as far as exorcisms or handling demons in a person? Absolutely not. Therefore, it is not necessary. All right. If somebody is in Jesus Christ, they cannot be possessed by Satan or by a demon. Jesus Christ is in you. It's impossible. If a person is afflicted by a demon, which can happen to any Christian, then they need to do what the Bible says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Flee from the devil and, you know, it, it tells you what to do. But when it comes to demon possession, I'm sorry. I know people that say, well, I was a, a exorcism last night. Okay, I talked to somebody about that one time and I said, well, that has nothing to do with scripture. I want you to know that right now. There's nothing in scripture that allows you to enter into that type of a thing. And whatever you saw was not what you think you saw because that is not a part of scripture. All of the things that people do in churches, if that upsets somebody, I'm sorry, go find it in the Bible and send it to me and I'll amend what I'm saying. It's not in there. This is sufficient for our doctrine and practice. Not just doctrine, it is for our practice. The, how we conduct our lives in the church, it is all right here. If it's not in here, then it is not something that is necessary for the church. Anything we add in becomes a tradition, okay? That's how that works. Um, all right, God has given what we need to rectify any doctrinal issue. Be prepared to search the word I said that while working in love to calm the contention. Verse 112. Uh -oh. Yes. Isn't this the, the isthmus there where they dragged the boats across? The yes. Yeah. I read somebody, would, I can't remember who it was, the writer, said they had all kind of people from all kind of walks of life that was there that brought all these divisions if they would come in. Oh, know, that wouldn't surprise me a bit. That, yeah. You, know, you had sailors from everywhere. Absolutely. So, you know, so they were prone to have people that disagreed with them. I was talking with that uh, at lunch with a missionary this past Saturday, somebody that's a missionary overseas. And in that uh, country this person is in, they have a high pot Chinese population, a high Indian population. They've got uh, refugees from other countries. They've got, uh, you know, I can't give all the populations without giving it all away. But um, these people are always in division because now, and this is going to sound really bad. It's going to sound unpolitically correct, but Indian people have their own cultures. And when we make stereotypes about Indians, guess what? It's because that's what they do. I have lived, I tell you where I lived was in Malaysia. They also have a large Indian population. They have a large Chinese population. I lived in a Chinese district. Chinese people have their own culture. When you stereotype a Chinese, it's because that's what Chinese do. And it's generalization, but it is what they do. And when you take an Indian and a Chinese and a Malay and you put them in the same room, they are going to have divisions. I don't care if they're Christians or not. They are going to have divisions because they are culturally different. And that's why this is what needs to be used. You need to go by this because what you're saying is exactly right. People are coming in with all of these cultural divisions and they're not able to process thinking the same way because Indian people do this thing. I'm not going to say what it is, but if I say it, you'd all laugh and you'd say, I know that. Okay. Or the Chinese, we know how they act. I will give the Chinese a pat on the back and say they are the hardest working group of people anywhere on the planet. And they are all over this planet. You want a good employee, a smart one, hire a Chinese. That's just the way it is. They're, they will work themselves to death, but they have certain expectations in their culture that we would not agree with. So you have to be ready for those things. But the thing about the uh, Japanese being the hardest workers in the world, remember we heard that in the 80s? It ain't true. It ain't true at all. The Chinese are much harder workers. I lived in Japan six years. I know what they do. They go out early. 
they're with their boss all day. The boss wants to go to the bar and he's out to the bar at two o'clock in the morning and they're there with him. And that's all counted as work time. But they aren't working all day. They're just average workers, just like Americans. They're hardworking, decent people, but they're not the hardest workers on the planet. I've never seen anybody work like the Chinese ever. Anyway, so there are stereotypes that you have to get through. And if you use this, that will take care of that. Forget that, Wang Chung. Forget that, Ramasami. Look at this, okay? There you go. Um, okay, 112. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. 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 Still another, I follow Christ. Hey, I like the last one. <laughs> Divisions. Paul referred to them in verse 10, and then what they resulted in contentions in verse 11. Remember, we were talking about Calvinists. That's the same as... Same thing as I follow Peter, which is Cephas, right? Okay. Um, now he explains the divisions that he has heard about. Now I say this is his way of saying, now this is what I mean. The believers in Corinth had divided into factions based on style of preaching or in some other way. One would say, I'm a follower of Paul. I see this on, you know, social media all day long. Oh, I like this preacher. I like that. That's fine. But I wouldn't say I'm a follower. I'm a follower of Christ, and I like how this person presents Christ. I mean, the less you get away from the personal identification, the better off you're going to be. Anyway, um, uh, based on style of preaching, some other way, I'm of Paul. Another would say I'm of Apollos. Paul was probably more theologically adept than the rest. As a matter of fact, there's no doubt he was. He was the most theologically adept. Having been a Pharisee who was well-grounded in Scripture, Apollos, who was mentioned in Acts 18.24, was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. He may have been a better orator, or maybe he could have had a message that he has woven together, which was inspiring and interesting. You know, you take that Adrian Rogers type of preacher. He can take this message and he can just make it so interesting that when you're listening, you forget what he's talking about and you just enjoy the overall thing. You don't really remember. What did he preach on today? I don't remember, but it was really good. Right? So it just depends on who is presenting what. All right? Anyway, um, but there were other divisions between these two. Someone else said, I am of Cephas. Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. He had been with Jesus from the beginning. He had received his instruction from the Lord and was one of the inner circle, along with James and John, at all, all of the high points in Christ's ministry. He could easily have become an object of adoration because of these things. He had seen the miracles, he was there at the resurrection, he beheld the ascension, and he was also the apostle to the Jews. And because of this, well, he's my man. And yet, there was another faction, I am of Christ. Well, that sounds right, and it is, if truthful, but it can also be interpreted in a negative way as well. If someone isn't holding to proper doctrine and says, I am of Christ, then those who follow him will be led astray. See that? So it could be negative. To say, I am of Christ then, must be followed up with proof of that claim. Or it is worse than fire in a hay pile. It is what leads to cults, feelings of superiority, bondage, and never coming to know the truth. Therefore, one must be extremely careful when evaluating such a claim. Paul is going to continue to discuss this in the verses ahead and will not leave the matter without a full explanation of what's appropriate. But from what he has said in this verse alone, it is apparent just how wrong this attitude is. And yet, even though it's clearly presented in the Bible, we still fall into this same type of trap today. 
How many thousands of people identify their doctrine with John Calvin, Calvinism? How many identify their allegiances with a pope? How many claim total adherence to the doctrine of Christ and are yet are actually deeply entrenched in cults? Jehovah's Witnesses. They all say I'm a follower of Christ. Every one of them. Yeah, Every one of them. And yet they are completely entrenched in being in a cult. This is the reality of the world that we live in. We get swept up into idol worship of a great orator. We get, John Hagee comes to mind. Great orator. He's the finest preacher, speaking-wise, I've ever heard. I would say that better than Adrian Rogers, and his doctrine is subpar. I want you to know that. If you listen to John Hagee, you are getting subpar doctrine. And yet you listen to him, you think this is the greatest orator I've ever heard. He's got a forceful message. He speaks out well. I wouldn't listen to him ever again. I'd listen to him 10, 15 sermons, every single sermon. There was bad doctrine. Things inserted into the Bible that weren't there, completely mishandled. He's uh, also a uh, dual covenantalist, bad doctrine, but he's a great orator. I'll give him credit where credit is due. Anyway, we get sidetracked when someone is supposedly theologically competent, but we don't check what they say. That's why I say again and again in this class, I hope that you enjoy what I say. I hope you find it edifying and building you up, but you need to go home and you need to check it out because what I say may not be correct. You have to check. You have to say, well, that doesn't sound right. You know, there are times where you listen to somebody and you say, that just doesn't sound right. Well, if you hear that with me, go home and check it out. Okay? Uh, the what? Fiberian. Absolutely. X-17. X-17. This may sound nuts, but it is more prevalent than one might think. Let us not make such errors. God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is what tells us of him and his work. Therefore, let us continually return to the fountain of Scripture and check our doctrine against it. When we place allegiance in a man, we will always be disappointed. Always. When we put our hope and trust in Christ as he is revealed in Scripture, we will always, always, always be edified and in a right standing with God. Christ first. Always Christ first. Life application, it is fine to hold a pastor in high esteem. That's what the Bible tells us to do. In fact, the Bible says that we should render them double honor. That's 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. If they, are, if they labor in the word and doctrine, then give them double honor. No problem with that. However, let us not place them on a pedestal as an idol. Rather, we need to never forget that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. May we never divide Christ as we see has happened in the church in Corinth. Yes? How do you get the K out of the Cephas? It's C. C. It's, a, it's a K sound. It just is. It's a what? It's a K sound. Greek. Yeah, Greek. It's it's just how you would pronounce it. It's like when you see in the book of Daniel, the river Chibar, there is no Chi. There is, it's a Ch. All right. The C-H anywhere in the Bible is always a Ch sound. All right. So just when they put a C in there, then that's just what it is. His name is Cephas. Okay. Now, how would you say Christ then with that sound? Well, you, you wouldn't. You would say Christos. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that just yeah. I just was curious because I you know I don't know I anyway. Cephas for years and then you yeah. Cephas is the way. Cephas. Well, we'll check it out. I could be completely wrong, but I, I'm I, I, rather I, certain it's Cephas. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, uh, One thirteen. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for no. you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Okay. Based on the divisions which have arisen in the church of Corinth, which were noted in the previous verse, 
Paul now asks, is Christ divided? Well, if you're in the church today, yeah, it seems like it. Okay. Is there one head of the church or not? If there is, then why is the church so divided? If there is, then why are we making divisions which don't actually exist within the body? Is it right to follow after a teacher, a preacher, apostle, pope, and so on, as if that person was the object of our faith? The answer is obviously no, right? And yet we install popes up in their little popedom, and they have millions of people come up, and they say that pope stuff that they do when he's ordained, and they follow him blindly. It doesn't matter what that guy says, they will follow him blindly. It's crazy. Oh, well. But there is another consideration to the opening of this verse. Vincent's Word Studies notes that some of the best expositors rendered this as an assertion. In other words, and based on the structure of the Greek, they place this not as a question, is Christ divided? But as a statement of fact, Christ is divided. The Corinthians, in other words, it's about the Corinthians. You've divided Christ, okay? The Corinthians had already lost the object of their faith, and they had already brought the divisions. Now it was up to Paul's instruction to return them to the proper path. In order to do this, then, he continues with the second thought of the verse. Was Paul crucified for you? His question is rhetorical, and it demands a negative response. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only acceptable crucifixion for the sins of anyone, including Paul. The crucifixion of Paul would have simply been the end of Paul without the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Paul, um, uh, I'm sorry, and Christ was not only crucified for Paul, but he was crucified for all. To somehow place an allegiance in Paul only diminishes the importance of the cross of Christ. Only he was and is sinless, and only his blood can atone for the sins of the world. What follows then is another rhetorical question with another obvious no for a response. He asks, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? If Paul wasn't crucified for anyone, then no one was baptized into the name of Paul. If Paul, I'm sorry, uh, baptism is a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. One is immersed as a picture of the death which resulted from the crucifixion of Christ. Oh, what's going on here? We'll stop and we'll take just a one minute. Come on in here. Uh, just put him right over on that chair right over there. Something's place is going to smell really good here. Oh, it's going to smell great in here. Yeah, man. Where do you want the Just right here on the chair. That's fine. It's just, yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Thank you now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay, but before we go on, I got to stop. We'll we'll get back in there in a second, but I got to read something. This is from I got to make sure I pronounce their name right. Eric and Lynn Schroeder. They sent money for this for us to have a uh, pizza party today. And I ordered an extra one day cuz we had big class last week and we still do, but um Pam, or I'm sorry, Pat didn't come today. Linda's not here today, and you weren't here, right? I said, we're going to have pizza. She's never here when we have pizza, and then she walks in. I'm like, this is a only second or third time, so good deal. But anyway, we got pizza, and uh, uh, I need to save a little bit for Hitiko because I told her that I'm going to bring her some pizza home. But anyway, we want to thank them very much. Thank you very much for having provided the pizza today. And uh, Tom, we did get something extra for you so that you can eat today, all right? Because he can't eat the pizza on his diet, so I got him something from there as well. Um, oh, we got to get back to our notes, and then we'll we'll finish this one up, and we'll be done. Um, let's see here. Where was I? Paul wasn't crucified for anybody. Paul wasn't crucified here. And uh, let's see here around his blood for yeah, only Jesus. Uh, sinless blood can atone for the sins of the world. 
All right. If Paul wasn't crucified for anyone, then no one was baptized in the name of Paul. Baptism is a picture of the work of Christ. I know I said this. One is immersed as a picture of the death which resulted from the crucifixion. Paul wasn't crucified for anyone. Paul didn't die for anyone. Therefore, no one was baptized into Paul. The work of God in resurrecting Jesus is the second half of the picture of baptism. One isn't merely submersed and left under the water. They're raised out of the water as a picture of the newness of life found in the resurrection of Christ. Paul's newness of life came from Christ, and the same is true with anyone who has been reborn by the Spirit. Therefore, to follow Paul or to follow Calvin or to follow Pope Francis is simply insane. Only Christ has accomplished the work necessary to save a soul. Life application, and we are done for the day. Let us not divide Christ, but let us always honor him and him alone. At best, let us acknowledge the instruction of others without exalting them in any unnecessary way. Okay? And let's say a prayer here. Let's finish up. And once again, we want to thank um, Eric and Lynn Schroeder very much for the pizza. That was outstanding of them. And uh, just thank them immensely. Wow, it's smelling so good. I'm starting to get hungry. I, I went to Publix. I didn't, I kind of ate. My lunchtime is at nine in the morning. And so, yeah, because, well, you get up at seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. So lunch is 12 for you. I start working at four. So five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's so nine o'clock is my lunch. And I thought, should I have a middle lunch when I was at Publix? But, and I, I counted the hours and I said, no, I better not because I know it's coming today. So you might gain I did, a little weight. Yeah, I might gain. I, I can't. It doesn't matter how much I eat. I, Hidako and I, we cannot gain weight. It's just, I, I, and it's bad because when you get sick, you got nothing to fall on. Anyway, here we go. Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for the book of 1 Corinthians. We thank you for the wisdom that you instilled in Paul to write these words and to build us up, to teach us, instruct us, and edify us. And we certainly thank you for the pizza, which was delivered by such wonderful people. They were thinking of this class, and we're appreciative of them for that. And Lord, we ask that you bless the food. We ask that you bless it to our bodies, and we pray for the hands that prepared it today and that brought it down here that if they don't know Christ that uh, maybe today you'll do something in their lives to pull them close to you and Lord we want to pray for the people that are uh, mentioned at the beginning of the class and the issues that were mentioned as far as surgeries as far as sicknesses as far as the other issues Lord be with those people help them give them comfort in their time of affliction and Lord we certainly do pray for Bill and Patty that they are able to make the right decision about their future in the mission field and what they're to do but we leave that in your capable hands, knowing that you will lead them according to your wisdom if they're willing to follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.